hear stories about what happened. It's true. All of it. The dark side. A Jedi. Hello and welcome to the final VFX show of 2015 and if we were going to go out with a bang this is the bang I'd want to go out on as the Millennium Falcon fires off into the distance I'm joined by my Jedi cohorts Jason Diamond how are you sir hey what's up <laughs> and Matt Whalen uh, I'm I'm really good so I don't want to argue who gets to play Han, who gets to play Chewie. Um, <laughs> as long as I get to play uh, Leia, I'm happy. Whoops, did I say that out loud? Okay. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens, which, of course, uh, is the blockbuster breakout hit of uh, the year. It probably comes as no surprise to many of you uh, that we're doing a VFX show about it because, in many ways, many of us got into visual effects, those of us that are old enough, uh, when Star Wars came out first time round. Um, though one of the guys in the office here pointed out he wasn't actually alive when it first came out, and I kind of felt really old. Um, <laughs> Matt, starting with you, are you old enough to have seen Star Wars, any of the first three, uh, as a, and I say the first three, I mean the original mm-hmm. uh, three, in the cinema? Yeah, I saw uh, uh, the, an original Star Wars before it was called A New Hope uh, at the Balboa Theater in uh, Balboa, California, on Balboa Island uh, in 1977. That's where I first saw it. Wow, Jason? Uh, yeah, in Florida, Fort Lauderdale, uh, I, 1977. I was in Sydney, and I got in, uh, it was obviously packed, I got into a session where I was kind of down the front, but I was, you know, a kid back then, so I didn't know to wait. I had no patience to wait anyway. And so I sat down kind of, I think, either the first row or the second row from the front, and so when the opening sequence happened and the ship came in from overhead, it just seemed to be coming in from <laughs> overhead for forever. <laughs> And uh, yeah, no, I was I was lost uh, and forever will be. Okay, so let's get a couple of things straight. We're going to discuss the visual effects. We're also going to discuss the film. It's very hard to not discuss this film in terms of its place in history. So a little bit of a discussion about that, but we will spend the vast majority of the middle uh, and the end of the uh, of the podcast discussing the, the special effects. But let's get a couple of things out of the way. Are we in or out on all of the six that preceded? Starting with you, Jason. Um, I'm fully in on the original trilogy. I am not so in on the prequels. I think the prequels are have are good for from a canon perspective because clearly it's you know ideas from the maker. But uh, I don't particularly care for how he executed them, and I think it's unfortunately the it's unfortunately what you get when you're surrounded by yes men, uh, and you don't have people like Gary Kurtz to tell you that. You're right. Some of your ideas aren't cool. Uh, Matt, do you think that this is a greatest hits, the new one? Or do you, because I mean, the, the criticism that's been leveled at this new film is it's a greatest hits. And the thing you couldn't really criticize 
the second set of three, four is just, you know, reworking the same jokes, reworking the same shots. But in many respects, the, this film does that. Did you like the second set of three films? No. <laughs> huh. I think I think like a lot of like, you know, Star Wars fans, like of, you know, certainly of our generation, people that grew up with the original movies, you know, I, I really, and I was at ILM when they started working on the prequels. I even, I worked on the, the special editions of the original trilogy and even got to be in the special edition of the original trilogy. Like some of our other <laughs> colleagues got to do uh, way back when. As and, a stormtrooper? Uh, yeah, I was a, I was a stormtrooper extra yep. in uh, the Moss Eisley uh, insert shots. And it was probably one of the most fun days I ever got to have at work. You know, I, I tell my yeah. students sometimes I'm one of the only people they'll ever meet who uh, got to engage in time travel, you know, like I was really lucky to be <laughs> at ILM at the time you know, when they were reworking the visual effects for the movie that inspired me to want to go to film school so I could one day work at ILM, you know, so it's like this really weird circuitous, uh, kind of thing, but, but no, I, I wasn't, I was optimistic about the, uh, the prequels and was excited when, uh, they sort of got underway. Everybody was excited, I think, uh, at the company at the time. And, um, I don't know. I just, I think for me, they, I, I so wanted them to be better than they were. And I, you know, it's like one of those things where you'd go and you'd see the Phantom Menace and you'd be like, Oh, that was, that was interesting. It was, there's cool parts in it. I, I want to like it. It sort of looks like star Wars sometimes. And, and you go and you see it again and you're like, ah, oh, it, it's not that great. You know? <laughs> and I think people kept kind of wanting to go back and watch it and, and hoping it was going to be better. And I think it just, it didn't quite, uh, capture the, some of that that um, that sort of magic or that awe that you got. I mean, they certainly first, get though. better. You know, yeah. They certainly from a technical climb. point of view, though, <laughs> from, from a technical point of view, though, they they delivered a bunch of stuff. I mean, leaving aside the, the plot for a second, this was uh, a incredibly big move into digital cinematography, wasn't it, Jason? I mean, this was sort of you know Star Wars declaring they're going to shoot stuff digitally was jaw dropping when it happened. Yes, I mean, I mean, I have been known to say and have recently been saying this a lot, actually, that you can criticize Lucas in any way you want creatively, but technologically the man completely changed the face of the world and technological filmmaking. The world, we would not have the Avengers and Transformers and the things that we have visually, the ability to do them if he did not do what he did, I don't think. Uh, well, I'd add to that Pixar and, and the rest of it. Well, yes, of course, Pixar, Avid, all the, th the companies that he started for other reasons that he, that he you know, uh, uh, sold off. You know, if anyone wants to read the book Droid Maker, it'll give you the whole oh, just shebang. Yeah. But, but so, yes, from a technical standpoint, I am fully on board. Uh, high praise all the way around. And I actually had – I saw episodes two and three at the ranch – uh, premieres uh, with like a whole MTV shebang that I was hanging with at the time and had conversations with Lucas about that specifically this, uh, during episode 3 about all the technical stuff it was right after the THX director's cut had come out and he and I had a long talk about the F950 and you know all that kind of stuff and I think I was the only one of the group of people that were there that could have that conversation with him. And I think he was kind of excited about that in a slight way. But, but yes, I, I give full props to the man from all technological standpoints. 
Yeah, I will say this. I, I, I think, you know, we, we criticize the, the second set of trilogies, especially Jar Jar Binks, but the guy that hits the brunt of that is Rob Coleman, um, who I think was, you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to say only following orders, but um, I think the animation that he himself did of uh, Yoda in the fight sequence in the third one was, you know, about the most difficult thing anyone's asked somebody to do, which is off the back of the criticism of Jar Jar, we want you to suddenly make this small character that's using a walking stick be this ninja fighting machine, and we want it to be done in a believable way. And I, I think Rob Common pulled that off, and I will forever sort of defend him because I, I loved that bit where Yoda reaches, the cloak moves open, and he sort of the lightsaber jumps into his hand, and, and he's yeah. off like a little dynamo. It was like this this terrific It's a Bruce solution. Lee moment, for sure. Yeah. But, I mean, it was, you know, if you were given that, like if you'd done Jar Jar, had the backlash, and then somebody said, yeah, you know, Yoda, we'd like him to become like a ninja fighting machine. You'd be like, oh, God, please shoot me now. No, this is, what? No, I'll get lynched. So, well, I, I would yeah. want to say, too, like just from um, speaking to the technical component of the prequels, I do think if memory serves, at the time that The Phantom Menace got underway, um, you know, we were we were always talking about every show that was coming coming through um, through the company. Uh, we, you know, you'd always talk about shot counts and what was going to be the shot count, and you know, trying to figure out how you'd break out um, sequences and who was going to be on you know what team for what part of that show. And then when the Phantom Menace came online, if memory serves, it was the single largest shot count uh, at the time that ILM had ever attempted to do on a single show. And uh, it was, I can't remember the exact number, but it was some staggering number of shots. And I think it only grew um, over time. And it was so large that they divided it into uh, three separate sections, I think, and had three yep. separate supervisors on the show. And so, you know, from a purely technical point of view, in terms of trying to sort of increase the bandwidth of the facility and to develop a systemic kind of pipeline that would allow uh, a production like that to actually move through uh, and be so malleable all the way through um, production because Lucas was, you know, just in, I mean, in a really exciting way, he was kind of insane in the edit room. He'd, you know, want to take, you know, this actor from this take and this actor from this take things that we actually in some ways kind of take for granted now, but at the time yeah, it, it seemed like it was, it yep. was wild and, and it was, it, it was pretty exciting. And it was like a, 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 a giant, um, sort of leap forward in terms of, you know, what ILM was going to be capable of doing, but that it really heralded, I think, a new paradigm shift in the way that, you know, any film could get made um, on a technical level. And I think that was well, really, yeah. really exciting. And like, think about so many of the accomplishments, the pod race, like the amount of geo that they were flying through. It was just, you know, it was like unable to be done. Like mm -hmm. we would like, you can't do that. Um, now today we don't have any problems with, you know, vast amounts of geo, but back then it was like, well, this isn't going to work. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's, that's that middle three. Obviously the first three were in an era that weren't digital. Um, so that brings me to this film and, uh, the first of the new section. So Matt, from your perspective as a film, um, can I get back to this point about it being a greatest hits? It's like the Rolling Stones coming out and doing, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff off, uh, you know, their, their, their early album, but in a, with a kind of a new arrangement. Um, do you feel that it's a good film in its own right? Is it a good film just because of where it sits in the, in the nostalgia of our youth? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's it's a it's a loaded question, you know, I mean, there's so many angles from which you could approach that. And I do think, you know, if, if you're setting out to make a, 
a Star Wars movie, uh, it does need to be able to stand alone in some way as its own movie, but it also has to sort of function within a certain kind of set of rules, a certain kind of sense of a world and a kind of, and a certain kind of expectations on the part of, you know, the fans and the audience. And I certainly think that's something that, uh, uh, Mr. Abrams and his crew, uh, were out to do in terms of developing a, a story that, that paid sort of homage to those things that I think a lot of fans felt like were missing from the prequels. And I definitely think, uh, he got that part right. Uh, but in terms of the greatest hits component, like, yeah, there's some of that, but I also thought there was some really interesting sort of, you know, sort of re-splicing of like DNA in a way there was some, there was an injection of some new blood, uh, into this thing. Um, that I thought, interestingly, I thought that was the, the injection of some old blood that really made a difference. And I don't know if you've got to comment on this, Jason, but Lawrence Kansan is somebody that I think is just really good. And I was so happy when I knew that he was involved in the writing of this, um, as he will be in the Han Solo sort of spin-off stuff. Do you feel like it's a new blood thing or has he got some old school stuff going on? I think it's a mix because I think a lot of credit has to go to Michael Arndt too, who wrote the original draft. Um, before JJ came on, before they had anyone, they hired Michael Arndt, and he wrote Toy Story three and Little Miss Sunshine. And Toy Story, which he won an Oscar for, Little Miss Sunshine. I think Toy Story three is a masterpiece, personally, yep. because and in that Pixar way where they make things operate on multiple levels for adults, for kids, for global themes, for tight themes, like it just it's every almost every Pixar movie is like a masterclass in screenwriting, much less any of the other execution that they do. And so Michael Arndt is also a like a Star Wars scholar, for lack of a better term. So he teaches screenwriting and he uses Star Wars as the map for teaching uh, screenwriting and how to deliver a uh, climax and tie up character arcs, you know, uh, around the climax. So as the he's the guy right he's the guy that you want and so he wrote the first draft and then when they once they hired jj at the same time they picked up kasdan to be like sort of a consulting producer across the whole star wars universe and uh i think what kasdan brought i think kasdan pro i haven't read either of the drafts obviously but I think that Kasdan probably is the one with JJ's guidance to really pull back in the vibe from the original one because by all accounts, Michael Arndt's story was was a little too bereft of the old style and he just went fully new and that JJ felt that this movie had to have way more of a handoff from the original trilogy to the next trilogy, which I think this completely ties in including you know we should obviously say that at this point we're gonna reveal spoilers yeah i was gonna say this is the point if you've <laughs> worked it out by now we're about to yeah. hit spoiler central so, uh, so you know turn off now if you're still with us we assume yes. that you won't mind finding out what happens in exactly. other words we are gonna reveal if you haven't picked it up already on the internet major points okay. yes so all um, i was gonna say was to end that point was you know you you take the concept of the reason hence the reason Han Solo gets frozen in carbonite at the end of Empire is because Harrison Ford didn't want to do the movie, right? And so he froze him in carbonite because he had, 
Lucas had convinced him to do Empire, but he didn't know if he was going to come back and do Jedi. So he froze him in carbonite to tie. And if you look at the story, his storyline is completely wrapped up by the end of Empire. And then everything he does in Jedi is almost inconsequential to the plot. Like it would happen without him potentially because Lando flies the Millennium Falcon. You could argue that about the entire Raiders of the Lost Ark film, right? Well, yes. He didn't do anything in Raiders. It would have worked out the same way. But yeah, I'm with you. So so in this film, clearly, and this is where the spoiler comes in, clearly Harrison Ford said, I'm coming back, but you have to kill me. Right? I mean, I would would almost bet that was the conversation. Do you think that there was a pitch that said something like, hey, we'll make the first one Han's film, the second one Luke's film, and the third one Leia's film? It's possible. Because it looks like we're setting up for Luke to be the dominant force in the second one, right? I mean, that's what it feels like. That being said, can I just say, and I'm sure you'd agree with me, um, Matt, that the, the new cast members really delivered some good acting. Like they actually delivered some really interesting characters. Like I want to see more of, you know, Daisy and Adam and stuff. Like it's not like I felt like I was waiting for them to get off screen so I could go back to the ones I liked. They were, they were good on screen. Yeah. I mean, I thought John Boyega and, uh, and Daisy Ridley were spectacular. I think uh, Oscar Isaac was, you know, filled with potential, but wasn't given a whole lot to do. I think he's a great actor. I think he's going to, but don't you think he's going to come in, in the sort of a second or third? I mean, it felt like they were setting him up for that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope that's the case. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, that was probably the thing I walked away with feeling most strongly about was I thought that the new uh, young actors, in particular, the Finn and, and uh, Ray characters, I thought were just, they're just so awesome. They're spectacular. They were so much but, fun. But did you think Adam screen. Driver was producing an interesting, he like, was great. Non- it was like oh, an yeah, incomplete yeah. villain that was, you <laughs> yeah, know, was like, like, like he has the tantrums. That was like, one of my favorite things. Yeah, like he's a teenager. He's exactly what Teen Vader style would be like. He's pissed off, so he just uses power to fuck everything up. That's yeah, what I mean, he obviously do. has power, and but he's inconsistent and yeah. he's moody and he's just annoying and doesn't <laughs> do what his parents tell him to. Hey, um, okay, so here's the thing: I've raised this whole question about you know the greatest hits thing. Can I now take the other point of view and say, who cares? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it has to be I, that. That's the whole point. I was watching a, a making of the um, chess sequence from this new film. So yeah, Phil Tippett that. was brought back to make uh, another stop frame animation of the chess sequence. So there is a, I sat there and I watched two, not one, but two, like 10 or 11 minute pieces discussing the making of what is one second of screen time in this new film. Mm-hmm. I, I took 20 minutes out of my life to wallow in the joy of Phil Tippett getting involved with, you know, everybody else that was involved in making this chess set come alive again from my youth. And it was apparently, you know, one second of screen time. So, so if I can get that obsessed and that interested in one second flashback, momentary kind of glimpse at something, you know, who cares? I mean, it would be a shame but, to have not done that. But this is the thing. And this is why it works for me. And I've read a lot of people pitching, complaining on the internet about the movie. Here's why it works for me. You as much as it's a standalone movie, it has to live in the world. You have six movies, regardless of what you think about all six, there are six movies worth of information that you cannot discount, especially the original trilogy, which is clearly the peak of the canon and the and the concept of the world-building, not just movies, world-building shit that has gone on for, for almost 40 years, right? Now... Anyone worth their salt would 
A, as a director, would want to recreate those moments. However, the brilliant part about the script for me is that is that Han Solo is the older audience. Ray is the new audience. So at times, you're, you're constantly in front of and behind the ball from a story perspective. When you're with Han Solo and he's talking about, oh, we, we, yeah, we, there's always a thing for the Death Star to blow it up. Like, let's just figure it out. Like, you're <laughs> like, yeah, I know that. Fuck yeah. I know everything you know. I've been there. I know everything you know. But then when Ray is doing something and, and you have no idea, you're like, wait, I have no idea what's going on. Where am I? And so then between that mix of that and... Ray, knowing the quote-unquote rumors, because they're in a galaxy, so it's just basically a giant game of telephone, they're hearing, wait, your hand solo? Wait, Luke Skywalker, I thought he was a myth. He's real? Wait, what? So, like, she knows all this stuff. So all these things are now exciting for her, which is basically the audience through her reliving their favorite moments. And so you have to throw in those visual gags to as the icing on the cake. Like there's a shot when they're in the Millennium Falcon and John Boyega is looking for something and he picks up the the yeah. training ball. Yeah. yeah. And for two seconds he picks it up and tosses it and you're like, Ah I, I know what that is. You know, like yeah. and, and yeah, what's no, her name? Sure. Uh, that's you know, where that's I was just Go gonna ahead. say that's where that's where I was thinking though that what they're doing too in a way though is they are taking everything that you know and everything that they're that you're familiar with and they're using the sort of you know, whatever it is, 30 some odd years since uh, Jedi, right? And they're using that time frame to sort of cross cut all the sort of DNA of these archetypal characters. And I kind of was struck with this feeling that, you know, there's that scene, <laughs> the big, the big scene in the movie where uh, one of our main heroes is, uh, is killed. And, um, and I kept thinking like, wow, it's so weird. Like he's sort of like, he's like Ben Kenobi now he's kind of like in it. He's fulfilling that role from the original movie. Like he's sort of the sage imparting the wisdom, you know, like, yeah, it's all real. Like everything you heard about it is true. Right. And then there's that, there's the scene on the, the, the catwalk where it's, it's sort of a reenactment of the, the Luke Vader scene, but it's also a reenactment. I think of the, you know, Luke, uh, seeing, uh, Ben Kenobi killed too. When you see Ray and yep. Finn, like up in the far distance and, and the way they respond and react, it's, you know, sort of a well, replay of that exact but, but, moment. But well, whammy, Kyle, right? Cause you well, look at Chewie and, and you just feel so yeah, bad yeah, because yeah. you've got all this back character that right, says, exactly. this guy's, uh, best friend. Just but died. I thought that's what was so interesting. It was a remix of all those things, but it was, and a, and a sort of greatest hits, but it was, but it was a remix. It was like, everything was changed a little bit. So here's my thing, and I'll use BB-8 as an example. If BB-8 hadn't been in the film and BB-8's role had been completely done by sort of R2-D2, I think it would have been too much just you going over ground done. Yeah. They introduced BB-8, which is a new droid, which is a slightly different personality. It's more like a puppy, younger than R2-D2, but kind of looks up to R2-D2, and suddenly you're there. You've got the young, new, that's interesting but it's fully in line with uh, what we had before, but we're not just playing the same gags. And, uh, you know, I, that's, we did, we invented something new. Well, and at the same time, two things, one BB eight is real, which was a brilliant choice. Because well, it's, it's real to a point, right? Like well, we can't begin to expect that most of those scenes, that was the actual onset practical. Right. Really? There's, I think there's a fair bit of it. I mean, you know, when she's when it's rolling along next to her in the sand, you don't think that's real. I think okay, there's. So let's there's let's f- now go to let's now go to visual effects, right? Well, wait. I was just gonna. My final point was just yeah. that with 
you have so you have in along your our previous point you had BB-8 who is the new droid who's sort of learning the ropes of how to be the droid who saves the world and yeah. the galaxy and then when they finally when you finally see R2 R2 is basically in a depressed state he is yes. uh, once master luke went away he has been in low power mode and he may never come out of it he's in the galactic funk of you know of he's eternity a dog that won't that won't leave until yeah. his master comes yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you know, you can connect with R2 who's completely oh, off and not doing anything. And you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah, he's super bummed. His buddy's gone. Okay. I Let me just quickly get out of this. I saw it in IMAX in 70 millimeter. I was in the back row of the largest IMAX screen in the world. I think there are only 13 IMAXs in the US that are showing the 70 millimeter print. There's one here in Australia that, that did it. Yeah. And it was incredible. Can we just clear? What, what did you guys see it on? I saw it on 3D, like mini max. Okay. But in stereo? In stereo, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and I, I just saw it 2D. Okay. So so I got to see more of it than you did, right? Because <laughs> they cropped down for your version and they oh, okay. had the full frame for mine. But nevertheless, it was epic, right? Okay, so, so let's just shift gears now and discuss the visual effects of the film because we could go on about the mythology and everything else, but I think other sites and other podcasts will probably you know heavily go into that. We have a great perspective on this from a, from a technical viewpoint. Um, but also, one of the things we have a perspective on is that as we're recording this, most of the details of the visual effects haven't been released. So I get a chance to kind of pick your brains as to what you thought was uh, real and what wasn't. Now, clearly, opening shots, space battles, um, you know, flying around in asteroids, we, we just don't assume that when they're flying the Millennium Falcon through the ruins of other ships that that's uh, miniatures and stuff. But if we leave that aside for a second... In your professional opinion, say Matt, what was the level at which they were using practical and level at which they were using um, uh, digital? Uh, I mean, uh, from my perspective, I, I would say a large portion of what I saw was was digital <laughs> effects. Um, I think uh, you know they clearly went uh, to great lengths to build a lot of digital. Uh, or I'm sorry, practical sets and practical costumes and characters and practical, you know, vehicles and stuff on the ground and whatnot. But the level of, um, you know, digital uh, augmentation enhancement or completely digital um, shots in the in the film, I thought was was pretty high. But that being said, um, I think, you know, one thing that they did in this film that was not evidenced in the uh, in the prequels, which I thought was kind of missing is that you know this uh chapter in the in the the pantheon of star wars movies is one where everything is has the potential to be sort of dirtier you know there's the it's the dirty world of star wars not the super pristine clean world although the new order stuff i guess new order first order first order <laughs> the, uh, yeah the um the, the blue monday yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. uh but <laughs> their but their stuff is real clean but uh but i thought the the dirty uh, stuff, you know, it really, it helps the, the CG a lot. Although I think, you know, that there's so many other things that help it too. I mean, like great lighting and, and uh, you know, great animation, great materials, great. I mean, it's, uh, so it, for me, I, I would say the bulk of it, uh, of all the effects work is still largely digital, it, at least in my opinion, from what I could so, see. So Jason, the, the Jedi mind trick that they sort of wave their hand around before the films come out is that it's heavily practical, you know, bringing out BB-8 on stage at Disney mm -hmm. Con or whatever it was. From your point of view, what do you think? Digital, I mean, not digital? I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with Matt. I think I do have some friends that, that did visit the set and reported back to me secretly that there were a massive amount of 
practical things, including a, a full Millennium Falcon that they got a tour of and things like that. So I know that obviously they did go to great lengths to make many, many physical things. Uh, I know Simon Pegg was inside, I think the shopkeeper guy who was rash at giving out the food or something on Jakku yep. uh, as a suit, you know, there's stuff like that. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a healthy mix because obviously during battles and dudes are flying all over the place, they're, they're clearly CG, not from a, because it's poorly executed, but just, you know, that they're not flinging stunt guys around like Mad Max did, you know? So, but I would, but I would say too, though, I kind of think like in a weird way, like I know why you asked the question, but I feel like, I, I think the question is sort of it's misleading. Like it sort of suggests that like <laughs> that, it, that, that, that it would matter. Right. Oh no, it's not that I ask for that reason actually at all. It's more that, um, I do think that this year has been characterized by a, if you want to go well in the Oscars and you want to connect with an audience, then you need to put your hand up and say, Hey, we did this with practical. And if you don't do that, then you stand the risk of people kind of going, yeah, you should have gone old school. You should have gone old school. And I think there are a bunch of Star Wars fans out there that wanted them to mow old school miniature uh, ships and stuff. And I don't think they did. I think what they did is they built, and I'm saying this like not from a basis of fact, I think that they're doing is they built a lot of sets and on Star Wars, the one, two, and three, as in the second set, Mm -hmm. did a lot of stuff with green screen and they just put a doorway on a green stage. Right, right, right. And I think for this one, they provided the actors a lot more physicality and a lot more location and a lot less uh, green screen stage. But the flip side of that is I you know, completely believe there is digital environments, digital stormtroopers, digital ships, um, and you'd be mad not to. Yeah. I- I'm sure they tried to pay homage to stuff as much as they could. And you know, they could have clearly done the one second of hollow chess um, with uh, digital, but it made sense for a uh, kind of cute you know, nod to the old days to do it the old fashioned way. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly Um, a marketing point. I mean, Disney, Disney had to do, and I think they made the safe bet at this point that they're pretty much in the clear, but obviously they made a $4 billion investment into a franchise that if they fucked it up in this one movie, they would be out $4 billion because no one would watch it after this movie. If this movie didn't do well, uh, you know, as of the recording of this movie, obviously the opening weekend was 500, and $27 million, you know, uh, worldwide, I think they're pretty safe in their investment. But, you know, that's a, there was a couple of years while they're trying to build the hype and they have to build the hype that they're going like, oh, forget that prequel stuff. We're going original trilogy. Okay. You know. Um, are there any shots that you thought didn't work? I have two or at least one. It's like two shots in a row. Yeah, I mean, there was there's one which is a, a really weird one. It was one, but it, I, it because I saw it in two D. I wonder if it would have looked better in three D. And I I can't. I, I've only seen the film once, so I can't quite place exactly where it was. But it was, I think, you know, still in maybe the first act or at the tail end of the first act. And it's when we see um, one of the sort of new star destroyers in space, and there's some ships coming out of it, uh, coming towards camera and the ships coming towards camera are smaller ships and, and they look really great, but the ship in the background is totally static and it's not moving at all. And it looked really like, it almost looked like it looked plainer, like it looked like a flat thing. And it made me think instantly when I saw it, it made me think of so many of the shots from the 
original trilogy where there's a very similar composition where there's a, an actual model of a star destroyer lit on a stage and they're shooting, you know, different passes with the motion control camera and then optically compositing those shots together. But there would be light moving across the model so that the, the large ship still had some parallax to the movement of the camera and there's some movement. And there was one shot of one of the large star destroyers where that wasn't going on. And it just, it rendered it in a way that looked so flat in the, it was a short shot, but it, it was one that I noticed right away. Cause I think maybe those are the kind of shots that so stick out in my mind as things I saw as a kid that were so, um, that were just really arresting. And it was a P something that was missing. Was that the one Tyson? where it was like nosed out into the, like, Yep, it was. It was screen. like it was. It was like it was sticking Pointing out like, at the screen. Yeah, correct. Okay, so in 3D, that is like in your lap, right? Oh, so interesting. You don't see like they they do the circle wipe or whatever they do to that, mm -hmm. and it ends on the point on the star destroyer, and all of a sudden they're like, "Holy shit!" This thing is like four feet out of the screen, and I think more than likely they assume people would be so arrested by that image that they wouldn't even see what's in the background. If it was even intentional, obviously, you know, things slip yeah, through. Yeah, in 2D, but, in 2D, it just didn't look like anything. It looked like a... Yeah. It just looked like a kind of like a quick, like half... Well, it's probably foreshortened. Yeah, yeah. 2D, it, it probably was. looks kind of like you don't get the depth. Yep. That's There's a sequence where Han is speaking to Leia on the planet before he takes off. And um, I think it's I think it's the, you know, we had some good times, didn't we, Dale? speech. And there are two close-ups of Luke and, uh, sorry, of Han and of Leia. And they looked really weird to me. I think they were blow-ups from film, digitally treated to deal with the fact that they were blow-ups on film. That's the only thing I can put it down to because hmm. I think we're in Meaning a, like reframed? Age. They were like reframed? Yeah, I think there must have been reframes that then went mega soft because I'm looking at it in 70 mil. Right. And so then they were like trying to image process it. I'm pretty sure there was an IMAX process done after you saw it to get it into up to IMAX for some of those sequences anyway. But it was like, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd say really bad digital skin makeup or really bad, you know, um, compression. Interesting. Or, you know, it was like it was artifacty, not not uh you know and you would think they would go back and rescan the uh, 35 as, as high as they could i mean i guess it already was i'm sure yeah it was it was just odd you know and it was like my eye was just struggling to find even where to look on the frame it hmm. was kind of things were were weird now i wanted to check with you guys because obviously you didn't see that from the sound of things and <laughs> that's interesting yeah in my version it kind of was like what was that about and even my kids who are like teenagers were like what what happened what went wrong there kind of thing well, you know, I, I had trouble seeing certain shots because my eyes, there was like some sort of water in my eyes on certain <laughs> scenes. I don't know where it came from. I think there was an air conditioning right. leak above me and it just kept dripping right. into my eyes. Yeah. So it was yeah. weird, you know, but uh, 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 I, I'm trying to think of, you know, I had, I kind of had, my issue actually was with Snoke. The yeah, now, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up. Okay. Let's because, that. because. I don't think I would rat. Here's the thing that bothered me that, okay, you cut to this shot and the dude is massive and you're like, wow, that's crazy. It looks great. Cool. I'm in. And then they cut to his close up and you're kind of like, ah, what? It looks like a, I, I just didn't like his, I didn't like his design. 
So, so my theory on that, and it's completely, again, just a complete guess. And I wonder if you'd agree with this, Matt. My guess is he's actually going to be Yoda size in the next. That's no, exactly what I was thinking. Is no, he's no, going to be I, super small? Yep. Yeah. No, I, I got that. I just still didn't like his. The design. So if you if you had a really small character like that, and he was kind of really small, and you, you know, then kind of blew him up, maybe that's part of it, right? Maybe, maybe. that he works small, but when you blow <clears throat> that small up and try and scale it, it doesn't have the kind of massive proportions that uh, or it doesn't have the look of something that's big and so therefore because right. you know the whole point about and we've discussed this before on the show the thing about it is that you can tell how big an object is by how fast it falls through frame because you know how fast an object falls and if it takes a long time to move through frame it has to either be you know very very big far far away or we're in slow-mo there's only two ways your right. brain can resolve that even if it's a round thing and you can't tell from it any dimension and so a very large thing just doesn't move the same as a very small thing because of physics, because everything exists in the same universe. And I find this to be a problem time and time again with giant robots. So they, like, you know, they just move far too mm-hmm. fast and they don't look big or they move too slow and they don't look dramatic. Um, and I think if you get a character really small and make them really big, um, it just doesn't necessarily kind of gel in your brain yeah. the way it's kind of sitting. And then, it, and then on top of that, I think you have the hologram effect. Which, the which hologram was fine. effect was working. Well, no, but I thought that was working against realism. It just felt like. Well, well I, here's a here's a lateral example. I think the grade on Terminator Genesis made Arnie's CG work look dramatically less believable. You know, I think right. like when you're trying to get these things out, and then you apply a cast over them. In the case of Genesis, it was a very bluey kind of modern grade. Um, and in this case, it was like the hologram bluey thingy that was doing. And there's different areas of transparency um, that I find that it just sort of fights your brain's ability to kind of accept it. And it, it's almost like, um, like you know when you've got a, a comp where somebody's really lit up from the background, which is true on a stage, but if you do a comp like that, it just takes it look stuck on, even though yeah. that's how things look. Um, you're just working against helping yourself. With that. I liked it. I liked it from a. I agree with you, and I I liked it from a story pr- point where you're sort of confused. It's the JJ thing that he constantly does, where he like tries to confuse you and then give you an answer and then confuse you again and give you an answer, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and a lot of times, that's my main problem with him is a lot of times it doesn't work. But it worked in this movie. But the thing is that you get this giant thing you're kind of confused like whoa who is this enormous dude and then when the like rocks fall from the ceiling or whatever happens and it kind of flickers the hologram and you're like oh okay right i forget i haven't seen any holograms yet in the movie that's what they do i get it my whole perception of who he is is now cast to the wind i don't know who he is at all he could be very small which i probably he probably is or at least human size and okay i get it it's a thing, you know, and that's fine. I just, it really came down to his design. And I know it's all about like, let's make, get Andy Serkis to do some cool motion capture and voice. But like, honestly, I'd rather see Andy Serkis act normally. Uh, yeah. Because uh, he's saw good. Avengers, he can't act. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. he's great. Put some, put some makeup on him and make him be that guy with makeup. So like, that brings the question of what do you guys think of Maz, the uh, CG character? I didn't like is... her either, really. I mean, it, she was good, but again, you have Lupita Nyong'o. I think everyone tries to recapture the Zoe Saldana 
magic from Avatar. And while I wasn't like a huge fan of Avatar, I enjoyed it. She killed it, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. She nailed like it. nailed it, right? So I think everyone's like, oh, well, we'll just do that. But like, no, because by all accounts, Lupita Nyong'o had a terrible time with the motion capture and just wasn't like feeling it because who would? You know, it's a very specific thing. And I, I don't know. I feel like there there had to have been maybe a, a different visual effect way to integrate her. You know, you have things as complex as Skinny Steve or whatever. Maybe you could have figured out a way to do that with her and get her grace and kind of interesting acting onto the screen. It felt like a prequel element to me. Mm. In a what, sense. What do you think? Yeah, I didn't I didn't I didn't feel that way at all actually and I I mean I can appreciate the sentiment of thinking about the actress and and how she is a really compelling performer, you know, oh, yeah. just looking at her like 12 years a slave or whatever, you know, I mean she's yep. amazing. But um I I really like the Maz Katana or Kanata or whatever her name is uh, character. I thought she was really interesting. I thought she was incredibly well uh, animated and rendered. I thought her anatomically, I found her sort of, you know, an interesting um, design as a character. I think when she's sitting at the table uh, with them and we see her sort of from behind, uh, and she's on screen right. Um, the way she's integrated into those shots in particular, that that camera setup, um, she's lit perfectly. She looks like she's really there. And when she gets up and climbs across the table and sort of messes with her uh, crazy goggles and stuff and looks at uh, Finn, I thought she was great. And then in the basement uh, of her... Um, or a castle or bar or whatever that place was. Uh, I thought that was, that was really cool too. I don't know. I thought, I thought she was really successful. She, she sort of hearkened clearly to the, the sort of Yoda uh, sage like character, but with kind of a, a strange sort of pirate like twist about her. And I, I don't know. I, I really thought she was a neat character and I, I'm hoping she survived and will be uh, in the next movie. I actually thought it worked well and it didn't, it didn't feel like a prequel thing to me hmm. oddly interesting she she for me was a cross between yoda and the one that makes the capes in the incredibles <laughs> yeah. totally yeah edna mode edna, yeah yeah she was i was trying to think of a name yeah it was like yoda cross <laughs> oh that's edna. really well stated yeah for sure yeah um and and i liked her I, I i found her appealing i agree i would like to see more i mean i like an odd character like that that and quite frankly you know let's not argue about the characterizations but in terms of actual physical presence do we think that she looked better in giving a performance than a rubber suited you know giant um sort of guy with a giant tongue in a rubber suit with a oh, I, mean, I know yeah. you guys had no, your I mean, eyes on a on a bikinied um layer at his <laughs> feet but I mean, I think it worked Jeff, great. I mean, it? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like it's. I mean, it's not that it's, not that it wasn't it's well apples and oranges just, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it 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 worked. I'm not saying it didn't work. I just so it was a character design thing, not an implementation. Is that what you're I, hearing? I, yeah, I mean, I didn't have any problem with the comp or the renders or anything like that. I just, okay, it felt like, I, I, it's just kind of a thing I have. Like at a certain point, it's kind of like, well, we'll just have we'll just have a digital character here. I, like I'm not entirely sure that it had to be a digital character. I, I don't know. I don't yeah. n- know if it. If See, I would a- I would agree with you on that on Simon Pegg's character. Like, right. I thought he could have been a guy with just really good yeah. makeup. 
Um, I don't think she could have. I think she needed to be digital to pull off what they wanted to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, obviously, you're not going to do forced perspective and get into the whole thing if you're going to do it. I, I'm not suggesting they do it fully real. I don't know. I just hmm. I, I liked her character and what she like the her 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 place in the plot. It's not about the character. I just yep. sometimes question the decision to go for uh, digital characters fully digital characters versus other options. See, I, uh, I think Simon's Pegg's uh, digital character guy, in the last shot we see of him when he's about to contact Yeah, when he's the, yelling, yeah. Yeah, I think that last shot was not as technically excellent as uh, as her shots. I mean, I just sure. felt like... Now, there might be reasons for that I don't know about, but you know, the junkyard dealer was a good character in what he was doing. I think he could have got away with really good modern day... Uh, you know, because... Let's face it, you can now use 3D printing to produce incredibly good molds that then right. go in for making things. Like there's a lot of tech you could add. It doesn't have to be the same tech that was used back in the original. You know, there right. must be really brilliant advances in what you can do with um, with makeup and stuff. And we know sort of some of that from the work that's been done elsewhere. So well, I'd have gone that way on that. Guy. And here's, here's, you know, back to your sort of remix idea. You know, initially, you know, Ben Kenobi takes... Luke into the Mos Eisley Cantina to meet Han Solo to figure yeah. out how to get where they need to do and, and finish what they need, what they started. And in this movie, Han Solo goes into the cantina to find someone to help them do what they need to do. So, you know, much to your comment before about on the bridge that, that Han has become Ben, he essentially has, even though everyone thought that Luke would become Ben and, and in a way he has, but actually Luke has become more like Yoda sort of, but also <laughs> on the bridge, you realize that Kylo Ren's real name is Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I thought that, uh, I mean, I, I totally agree with the things you're saying. I think the other thing is that that attack sequence, um, was good, but uh, the best piece of attack sequence flying, I just got a note here to myself, was, I forgot to mention earlier, when they're actually back um, flying through the the wreckage of uh, a previous war. I thought that was well art-directed, well-conceived. It, it felt like really, like someone came up with some really good concept art mm -hmm. and someone said, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Like exactly that. Yep. And, and then the scale on that stuff was really good. Some of the flying of the attack sequence after the slash cantina sequence was a little harder for me to follow. It was a bit more like everyone was flying around and they just seemed to be shooting everyone with yeah. precision of a episode one. But <laughs> in in this one, in that, in that earlier sequence where she's trying to lose them and, and fly through stuff, um, I just thought, wow, that is just... I haven't seen that before. Uh, it's beautiful. It's epic. And it's such a great thing to have these collapsed, broken hulks of a previous generation that you're just you know, flying through. Well, and, and I've got to say, I know it was in the trailer, oh, sorry, released before, but that shot of her scavenging. When oh, she's, yeah. Oh, beautiful. Just beautiful. But th that's the thing, again, from a story point, is you've we've never seen X-Wings and TIE Fighters fighting at ground level before, right? So you're taking, yeah. you're taking the TIE Fighters and X-Wings that normally fight outside of the Star Destroyers in space and you invert it and they're fighting inside the Star Destroyer on the ground, including maneuvers that the Millennium Falcon does, which is echoing 
the trench run or the internal trench run in Return of the Jedi, right? Just through tight spaces and and whatever. Yep. So again, I think they were just like, yes, like just constantly dropping like little notes, like remember this, remember this, remember this, without being sometimes on the nose and sometimes not. But but from a cinematographer point of view, they were doing the impossible camera, right? It's yeah, like a camera that's flying everywhere. Yeah, and that's fine. A, in this case, but. Yeah, I thought it was. I didn't feel like it was just nauseatingly, like, gratuitous. Um, you know, there are sequences that we've done like that in other films. Like, there's a Star Trek one fairly recently where they're just flying through stuff and they get narrow and narrow canyons and eventually the guys that are following them will blow up and you kind of go, yeah, yeah, I could see that coming. And also it was just like, get over it. I'm, you know, when you're done, you're done. Um, whereas this, I thought it was kind of fun. Like, that sequence worked. I understood the geometry, the, the geography and... Uh, and I was interested to see them pull it off. Um, so I thought it was good. I was going to say that the one thing, I mean, I, I loved all those sequences in particular. I think I would concur with you, Mike, the one uh, on the the desert uh, planet. Um, I think uh, through the old ships was so cool. And it was so fun to see uh, the Millennium Falcon uh, hit the ground so many times. That was so weird. Uh, <laughs> Wasn't that weird? Yeah. But it was kind of cool in a way too. And the, and the joke about like that ship's garbage or whatever, you know, so all that stuff was great. But the one thing I thought was missing, there was only one, I felt only one really new iconic design for a vehicle, for a ship. I thought the Star Destroyer, the new Star Destroyer felt really uninspired. I thought Kylo Ren's shuttle was just kind of like, what, what is that? It's like a wing, you know? Like well, it was it just the Tidarium like, without the middle without the middle fin but it, but it was even and then there was like some weird shuttle that like that uh princess leia's on oh yeah like, it was the like a it was like a shoe box or something yeah and i just thought the only iconic uh, vehicle <laughs> design i thought in the whole thing was her uh tractor uh speeder yeah. thing that she mm -hmm. kind of drives around on and, and that thing was pretty cool it sort of clearly has uh harkens back to luke's land speeder in a way but only in, it's instead of horizontal right it's vertical <laughs> kind of as a shape but but it they did were feel industrial not oh yeah not cool yeah, yeah yeah it felt i mean it looked like like a tractor really like a farm yeah. piece of farm equipment or something i just thought there were no real inspiring ship designs and i that was one thing that i mean they used the the original macquarie art for the tie fighter and kind of juiced that up a little bit and then or i'm sorry the x-wing rather and then the tie fighter just kind of got a new paint job which i mean it's cool i love those shapes i mean then they're very iconic shapes but you know none of the um the other ships from uh, jedi uh made it back in there were no none of the what were they the a wings or the b wings yeah. or the y wings those were all gone so so okay but there is one that you haven't mentioned what did you think of the design of the star killer base i actually thought that was <laughs> i mean it's ridiculous but i it was kind of <laughs> rad though like it was rad because it was so absurd it was like the idea yeah. of it being sort of like a almost like a they terraformed a planet on top of the machine or built the machine inside the planet so just visually i thought it was cool it was it was fresh you know it had a fresh look about it like this idea of a sphere that's kind of almost like a pokemon ball or something yeah you know, but it's like it's like cut in half and opened up in a way and i thought that was kind of cool well it also made for a great sort of visual reference when they're looking at the plans for mm -hmm. it and that you see like first death star second death star and then giant planet you know yeah thing. yeah it's like and the size of the hole you know like yeah the gun hole in the star killer base is like yeah you could fit a whole death star in there you know yeah and 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 so is like this there's a pro there's always there's always a, a flaw let's just just find the flaw there's <laughs> always one you know like it's it's uh that was super funny but 
Um, I have to point out my favorite. It's not really a design, but it's like a sort of a remix along this remix idea was Captain Phasma, who was super underutilized, probably to the mm-hmm. same level that Poe Dameron was. But a chrome stormtrooper is fucking badass. I'm sorry. From the from the trailer and she's a woman from the trailer yeah, but they they put her in a garbage thing so i mean it paid that was that was a good joke but yeah. b there was uh pretty much an open door for her well, she's like out. she's like boba fett though you know she's yeah. like she's super cool looking but just kind of a turd like on, on the yeah. screen like doesn't get anything yeah. done like, Bo- yeah. like boba but, fett never really got anything done and neither did she like yeah you know sort of you want that character to um, be so boba like new to hang around for the garbage dump like he was a bright guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, that was the one thing he did. I guess that was pretty, um, pretty shrewd. One job to do, and he did it. <laughs> but her, her she, chrome, yeah. her chrome design is informed, seemingly from the planet base uh, interior when they're at, at the end when they're there trying to mm-hmm. blow it up up the planet. There's tons of chrome doors, and there's a lot of chrome, like dirty chrome, inside that that base. So it kind of seemed like, you know, that was where she was coming from. Uh, I don't know. I just... I mean, I would be very disappointed if she doesn't get another run. I, we don't, we've seen the end of it. That would be a tragedy. I mean, listen, Boba Fett was in two movies. She, she could be at least in two, in two movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know we're going to have this discussion again in a year, right? When the next one comes out. Which yeah. Which is not the next one, but... The, Gareth. An, another Star Wars film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then well, Ryan Johnson, now? and then Jesus. I mean, Colin Trevor. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this film, this next one, this uh, the offset, smaller version could be really, really good. I love the idea. Yeah, it's so, well, and it's it's Gareth, it's Greg Frazier, who's one of the best DPs going right now. He shot killing uh, killing John them Noll. softly. What? It's John Knoll. What? John, John Noll not only helped write it, but he's doing well. The yeah, graphics. yeah. Well, that too. Yeah. Obviously, I'm just saying, deep director and DP plus Ben Mendelsohn in a Star Wars movie. I'm in for that. You know, one of the things what? I thought too that uh, of of uh, all the things in the film, there were so many great things that I really liked. But one of the things that I thought didn't work for me, and I wondered what you guys thought. And this is not a visual effects thing. I apologize to the. Uh, those wanting to hear uh, only visual effects talk, but I feel like this is an important piece if we're talking about a Star Wars movie. I felt like the score uh, was really it. It didn't. It didn't click. It, it. I felt like it was. It didn't ever. There weren't any really super strong themes other than maybe uh, Ray's theme that they play, and then some of the original themes that get played. But the score felt really. At least in the mix, I heard it was it was mixed way down. It seemed like, and it wasn't very present. And one of the things that was such a big deal, at least for me as a kid growing up, was in the original movies is the score. Really, oh, totally. it tells you what to think about all the characters. It it under it underscores <laughs> literally everything that's going on. You know, it was pretty in terms the of character and theme. And I just felt like it it didn't have the same. Uh, I actually, I actually thought the score, which I know was not John Williams, but I thought another J.J. Abrams film. I thought the score from uh, Star Trek Into Darkness was almost more inspired than uh, than this score. And I almost feel like I, I just wonder if maybe John Williams, who I think is in his eighties, you know, I wonder if he's, you know, does he have another great score in him, another great theme? Well, Jason, you're the audio expert. What do you think? I mean, I in this the, 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 the 
theater I was in, it was everything was loud as shit. So like, I my kid was holding his ears at a certain point. Like there was there was this guy. It was like super loud. So yeah. maybe maybe I maybe, just got a bad. I mean, it's possible. I'm not. I'm not discounting it. I I felt while there were no new themes, I thought again from this moment of nostalgia that the JJ and and team really knew the right moment to go for that kind of still moment, look at a character that you knew already, hit the theme really hard, and be like, remember this feeling you had 30 years ago? Here it is again. Boom. And they just kept dropping these moments that would just, you know, swell in. And granted, I saw it opening day. I kept my kid out of school. You know, <laughs> we made it a thing. We stood in line. We were first in line. Cool, you know, we just dad like of, made dad a of the year. fun thing out it. of it. <laughs> and, you know, sat right in the center of the theater. And, you know, every time a new character uh, or a, a, a old character would come on screen, the whole theater or, clapped. Right. So it just turned into yeah, a whole. I, I, I was seeing it with people with actual lightsabers to find their seats. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and, uh, there was one woman in front of us who actually had two Danish, I mean, real Danish, strapped <laughs> to the side of her head uh, on top of headphones. Um, it was her snack. I agree. That's the, a lot of fun. During the film. Uh, hey, um, yeah. Sorry. Can we just discuss a couple of Easter eggs? Because we're near the end of the show. Oh, yeah. I think that people would like to. You know, if you haven't read them all on the net and, and stuff, there are some really funny ones. Um, uh, this theory that Daniel Craig was <laughs> the stormtrooper in the uh, Jedi mind trick. I mean, if that's true, and I think it is. No, he had, he said it was. Yeah. Okay. He has now, has he? Yeah. I, thought, I thought it was only rumored. Okay. Well, that is just about the greatest Easter egg in history. Yeah. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah it, that that was just spectacular. I'm going to I'm going to drop my gun now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'll even drop my gun. Yes, yeah. that was just so good. I mean, I was that that's the sort of stuff I love. Were, were there other Easter eggs or even for that matter comedy that you just really uh warmed Jahan? I thought it was f- really funny. Like I thought It was really funny. And it and I liked, you know, you had the original play, comedy play between like Ray and Finn when they're in the flying the Millennium Falcon. And there's the, you know, they're, they're playing off the tone of the, you know, don't get cocky kid kind of stuff and, and her comments about the, the ship and what have you. But then whenever Han Solo came in, that whole section with Han Solo where she's like, this is the ship that made the Kessel run in 14 parsecs. He's like 12, 12 parts. You know, like they did a lot of stuff where it's like clearly like a fan who doesn't know enough and the super fan who argue all the time for the last 40 years. Just, uh, well, just and, while we're arguing that point, a parsec isn't actually a unit of time, right? So you know, <laughs> yeah, of course, like, yeah. But, I, but uh, the other, I was going to say that the other, the other thing that at least in the theater I was in uh, that cracked everybody up was the the thumbs up lighter gag from BB-8. Oh, my oh yeah, and then and then the other one that was so great and Harrison Ford only Harrison Ford could really do it as Han Solo or maybe Indiana Jones, but his where he says move ball. <laughs> at one point getting bb8 to move like you want he and that you know chewbacca too i think i mean for me chewbacca was like the heart of the movie like i was i was i never yeah. loved chewbacca more i mean i always thought he was awesome but it was like he was the best and <laughs> what do you I, mean I he's saying love, what do you mean you're cold you yeah know? that's my I favorite love line finn back on the no my favorite line was finn back on the planet and it's like you know just, i don't know i made it up kind of thing it's like what yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just came down to rescue her. Like, what? <laughs> well, and that was the other p- piece that I thought was so great was how um, 
you know, the Daisy Ridley character, she really does become, you know, sort of in a sort of fake out. If you're only watching the trailers and stuff, you, you think that, Oh, like John Boyega is going to be, he's the new Jedi, like a stormtrooper turned Jedi. Yeah. He's the one we see with the lightsaber and, and, uh, the way that, um, you know, Daisy Ridley's character from the very get go, you know, we see that she's so, uh, self-sufficient and that she's not a, um, you know, she's never a, the damsel in distress. And so she, you know, is this strong female lead. And I just think having something like that, uh, you know, in a 21st century star Wars movie, I mean, it's, I mean, I think there's always been strong female characters. Princess Leia was too, but I mean, this yeah. is a whole nother level. Um, and I just think it's, I think it's one of the coolest things in this version of the movie is that aspect of it. The sort of the woman being the central lead and then the sort of just the diversity of the cast and stuff, I think is something that I think is one of the coolest things, if not the coolest thing I've ever seen in a star Wars yeah. movie to sort of turn it into that kind of, um, and it didn't feel like there was diversity just to be no, perfectly correct. It just no, seemed like these Scottish were the right, guy. it seemed like these were the right people for the roles, you know I mean? And it was, yeah. it's just as cool. It was so cool. I love that aspect of it. Well, that's, that's the thing I liked about it in this again in this sort of remix sense is the movie opens from the stormtroopers perspective which we've never seen before mm -hmm. right and there's they're supposedly all the same in some capacity now you realize they're not because he's black and they're clearly not all black stormtroopers and the or maybe they are i don't know i thought they were all made from boba fett or jango fett but uh no that's that's addressed in the film though yeah they actually said no no i know yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, but I'm just saying. Uh, so, but again, because they all look alike, they have this moment where the where the his friend or somebody he knows dies, and he wipes the blood on his face. And so, two things are accomplished. One, you've never seen a stormtrooper really kind of die, right? Much less blood. And well, now, yeah. and now he's identifiable <laughs> visually well, yeah. with with this, you know, the swipe on his face. Uh, and I mean, it's just basic film stuff, but I, I really appreciated Wilson. that. Yeah, exactly. It was total <laughs> Wilson. Should have been a handprint. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think that that kind of stuff really start, set the tone really early, like for like, okay, I'm in the Star Wars world, but I'm somewhere I've never been before view from a viewpoint and obviously story-wise, but you know, I, I don't what know. What did you I guys, really... what did you guys think of the new, um, the new sort of spitting Kylo Ren lightsaber effect. Um, I liked the fact that it was rough and it yeah. was an unpolished mm -hmm. for an unrestrained, um, you know, sort of somebody that would basically that'll do, you know, I've got it working. That'll do. I won't have to refine it to make it disciplined. So I, I liked it. And also, you know, I mean, I, I, every time they do one of those lightsaber things, it kind of changes my understanding. I remember when they did the double ended lightsaber, mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that's, uh, that's not how they're meant to work. <laughs> yeah. But then I, you know, thought it was valid. So Yeah, I, I, I was a little skeptical in the trailers just because I didn't know his character. But now that I know that his character is an unfinished Jedi trainee. And uh, a wannabe. So he'd make right. something flashy. Mm -hmm. And he'd make something that he, that he couldn't refine because he doesn't have yeah. the skills to refine it. Yeah. Um, Why well, you, you didn't like it? No, no I, I loved it. Was it. Really, I, I thought it was cool. No, I, I just was curious saying. in yeah. terms of, I just was thinking in terms of uh, additional sort of, I'm trying to think of additional effects aspects of the story that we maybe had. Well, 
gone over. Especially that. because, especially because he used the little like hilt, you know, mm-hmm, uh, lasers mm-hmm. in battle. They weren't just there. Like he burned Boyega's shoulder and like did other things with it. That you're like, okay, well, it's functional. It's not just, it's not just there. I thought the lighting uh, during the lightsaber battles were really nice, especially the close-ups, like the lighting on their face. Uh, faces I thought was really well done. Yeah, I feel like they really did a great job on that in the prequels too, though. I, th- I thought, in, I remember yeah. seeing in the prequels how great it was to see like colored light moving across the faces of the actors, yeah. you know, when they were engaged in, in combat with someone else. And, and I feel like that's something that's definitely uh, so different from uh, yeah. the first trilogy and, and is, it makes it so much more integrated and believable in a way. Can I, can I bring up a, I know, shockingly super nerd point about the saber that, lightsaber that Ray finds? I'd be disappointed if you didn't. She finds a blue lightsaber. By the end of Jedi, Luke has a green lightsaber. Is that blue lightsaber the one that Ben gave Luke that was Vader's? Yes. That's my, that's my theory. Yeah. No, it's Which the one. Why... It's the one that he lost when his hand got chopped off yeah, in Best. Yeah, I thought as yeah, well. yeah. So how she got it should be interesting backstory to it. Yeah, well, that was like a story for another day. Yeah, that line wasn't put in there um, by accident. Yeah. Um, um, which I guess would, which I guess would be why it calls to her because it has it's sort of like the One Ring. It has the power of Vader and Luke combined. So is somehow. she is she Luke's daughter? I mean, she has to be, right? I, I, mean, I don't know. I thought, I thought she's so good. I think I initially thought that, but then after thinking about the concept that she she's 10 years younger-ish than Kylo Ren, uh, and there's a 29-year gap between the two movies in the Star Wars world, and he was trained. Luke was training a bunch of young Jedi trainees. It's possible that she was the one kid that Kylo Ren didn't kill, and they sort of nah. snatched her up and threw her onto Jakku as in the Luke and Leia sort of will hide you scenario. That's my I, yeah, only that, other possibility. Though I think it's more likely that she is in fact the daughter of Chewie. That would be great. <laughs> um, Chewie and okay. and Admiral Akbar. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Which was great to see Admiral Ackbar again. <laughs> okay, well, I think we've done this to death. Um, guys, it's been terrific uh, talking with you about what is, after all, just a cracker of a film. Um, I think this film delivers. I think ILM has done a super terrific job. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to more character animation uh, in the films that are to come, quite frankly. I think that they can go a bit further. Hopefully, this has been a bridge and now we can, you know, sort of take some of these new characters and take them even further um, because we're not going to want to see the same homage to every other film in the next, you know, six of these. Yes. Things. But we won't feel bad about it, um, hopefully, because we've had this one. So, yeah, really, really great film, really good visual effects, uh, stunning environment work. We haven't really discussed the environment work so much. And obviously, very, very good modeling. And I think there was a lot of attention to detail on those models. It just made them look so good. I happened to walk into the house last night and uh, switch on the TV and Spaceballs was on. <laughs> and I'm just aghast at how bad the models were. Now, it's obviously a completely generational sort of different film. But I just remember thinking, you know what? I'm just so used to good models from ILM. I just to be reminded that it's actually not, uh, you know, an automatic thing. The, um, from helicarriers to... Uh, 
to federation vessels to whatever. It's just, you know, the modeling team deliver and keep delivering and they, they didn't let us down. Um, guys, where can people uh, touch base with you as we close out the year, starting with you, Matt? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt Wallen, and uh, my website is uh, mattwallen.com. So I have one more uh, sort of mystery box question to ask you, but mm. before I do that, <laughs> Jason? Uh, Twitter's Jason Diamond, my, my website with my brother, thediamondbros.com, and uh, Frame.io. But can I point out uh, one quick thing? Uh, the shot, one of my favorite shots uh, of the Apocalypse Now shot of the TIE fighters coming through the sunset. Yep. Todd I mean, Missouri. come on. Yeah. Total Todd. What the fuck? And That's I sent cool Todd list. a thing on Facebook of a guy uh, had tried to figure out how big the TIE fighters were in ex- in, and how far away they were from each other <laughs> doing like math but I read the whole article and the guy failed to take into account uh, focal length uh, yeah whoops and so so I just wrote to Todd by the way and he's like yeah I know I read the whole thing <laughs> my, that was the one shot in the movie where my son leaned over to me and he goes during, right when that shot comes up he goes dad that is a really cool shot <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay like, so my last my last mystery box question for you both. Uh, as we speak, the 10 films that are going into the Bake Off have come out. Mm-hmm. Ant-Man, Avengers 2, obviously. Uh, Ex Machina, uh, Jurassic World. Mad Max, Martian, Reverend, uh, Star Wars, of course. Uh, Tomorrowland and The Walk. Is Star Wars going to... Is their team going to make the walk up the stairs to get the uh, gold statue? Hmm... That's a tough one. I, I'd say yeah. it's it's a, for me the top three contenders are this movie, Ex Machina, and Mad Max. Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Ant Man might be the in there three. too. I wouldn't put. Yeah, maybe. I wouldn't put. I forget the other one. The Revenant. Have you seen? I that? have not seen the Revenant, so that's that is a. That is uh, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think Jurassic World was really good as well. Jurassic World was good, but I don't know if it's. I don't think it'll win, but I think yeah. it's good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it'll supersede any, you know, Mad Max, Ant Man, or I'm supposed to come up to X-Men. New York for the, for the, whatever the the vote or the nominations for VES awards. I think, oh, in the, dude, in when is that? Early January, I think. Well, let me know. I have to say, for me, I think Star Wars will probably take it. But the other film that I really enjoyed this year, and it isn't to knock Star Wars off that. Um, uh, ability to get their name etched at the bottom of the gold statue. But the other film that I just really, really enjoyed that I was so glad to see on that list was The Martian. I just loved that film. Hmm. Yeah. It's the, so, the least tense Ridley Scott movie ever. <laughs> it was just a really good film. And, uh, I agree. you know, I just loved it to death. I saw it again recently um, and uh, just a really, really nice piece of, of uh, filmmaking. And I just so got behind the characters. I mean, maybe it's because, um, you know, got a man crush uh, on. <laughs> <laughs> on the lead actor but um you know can doesn't i matter yep can i ask you guys what you think of this is my question to you guys now since i don't think i've asked one how do you feel about the martian being reclassified as a comedy for the golden globes what well, yes okay so for that start, is official does they, anyone care about the golden globes irrelevant I mean, so shouldn't it's like 12 guys from yeah. from foreign press some of whom don't even review movies yes i mean i is. know but i'm just saying it still sets a precedent for certain eh, things for people dumb. being able to manipulate 
whatever. Yeah, they, yeah no, it's the but studio I, I mean, pushed for it. I think the whole it Golden and, Globes is a complete joke. Yeah. yeah, I mean, honestly, it's like yeah, it's, it's but, just convenient. I mean, time. Yeah, I mean, but for what it's worth, like that's ridiculous. <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> in answer to your question, I yes. find yeah, that absurd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's more. There is comedy in it. In that there are funny moments. Yes, of course. But it's a dramatic film, and Star Wars yeah, has comedy it, in it too. But you wouldn't put it in yeah. the comedy category. Nah. Yeah, it's not the reverent in terms of seriousness, but yeah, you know, any Iron Man film, any, uh, you know, yeah, has exactly. a ton of humor, sure. right? Ant-Man, so I don't think it's, you know... I mean, I dug I The Martian. I, I only saw it in I just, mono. Yeah. I, I wanted to see it in stereo, but the... Well, now I, I feel like I have to go see Star Wars again in stereo now that we've had this conversation. For sure, I'm going to have to check out uh, a different yeah. format. No, I think so. You don't think so? I, I, I would see it in 70 millimeter, honestly. The 70 mil was... Like when it opened and my entire peripheral vision was covered by what I was seeing hmm. from head to toe, top to bottom. It was just this, everything in front of me was Star Wars. I was giddy like a schoolgirl. Was it school film? Boy. 70 mil film? Yeah. Yeah. 70 millimeter yeah, film. Yeah. See, what hmm. sucks is the theater here where I saw Interstellar in, in IMAX, true IMAX, like the largest in that grouping yeah. of largest theaters. They took that film projector out and replaced it with... 4k laser projectors so and and i get that and that's going to happen in this one in yeah. um march i think but for now for my money this is yeah. you know i have to find um, a 70 mil uh there's only 13 screening. of them in the u.s yeah so it's a treat but if you get to do it it is very much uh there's gotta be one in new york mod. there is i gotta find it yeah Okay, guys, thanks so much for being with us on the show. We really appreciate it. Until the new year, travel safe. We really hope that you'll join us again in 2016. On behalf of everybody here at uh, FX Guide, we want to thank our hosts, especially these guys, but also our extended family of hosts that join us each year. We want to thank you so much for listening into the show. We get loads and loads of emails. I should actually also let you in on a little secret. Um, while I was incredibly glad, as of course I always am, to have both Matt and Jason on the show, never before have I had so many emails from our hosts saying, let me on the show. I think we had like eight of our um, guests <laughs> and semi-regular guests saying, I want to be on the Star Wars VFX show. And it was very hard. But of course... Wow, uh, well, thank you for uh, choosing us. Yeah. Hey, uh, you guys are, are terrific. And we always enjoy getting your opinions. And... Um, Thank you again so much for being with us this year at uh, FX Guide. Until next time, I'm Mike Simmel. See you. I can die now. My whole life has led to this moment. I'm in heaven. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Oh, 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 oh,